Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I just cannot abide iTunes anymore. The only reason that I even use that piece of shit anymore is because it's the only program, at least that I'm aware of, that'll manage and sync my iPod and iPad. I have absolutely no idea why Apple is so determined to turn iTunes into the equivalent of a third world country, but since they clearly are, I guess it's probably time for me to immigrate. So, on that basis, do any of you use non-iTunes clients to acquire and manage your podcasts? And if so, you got any recommendations? Let me know. I'd like to hear about it. You can send me your recommendations at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Also, something else that I'm uh, going through here. I had oral surgery on Thursday, right? This is Thursday, November the 6th. That's when I had oral surgery, and they basically extracted a shitload of teeth, you know? One regular tooth, and then three wisdom teeth. Now, my entire life, people have always told me that getting your wisdom teeth pulled, it, it hurts like a bastard, uh, you know, the pain's gonna be just unbearable, fucking, you know, blah, 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 blah. Having gone through the procedure now, I've gotta ask, is this it? I mean, if the pain that I'm feeling right now is as bad as it gets, I kind of have to wonder just what the fuck everybody else is talking about. I mean, I posted the same type of thing on Facebook, and at least one other person agreed with me because he said that the same thing had happened to him a couple of weeks ago, and that either he's Wolverine, or else everybody else are, you know, they're all a bunch of fucking sissies or something. And so... Now, just to kind of put this all in perspective, years ago, I had some really serious mouth pain. Basically, what happened was, I broke a tooth, is pretty much what it came down to, and it hurt. I mean, it hurt bad. It hurt so fucking much, I, I could barely stay conscious, right? It was all I could do, not just to, to just not, you know, pass out at my desk and everything. So that hurt. All right, but I mean, you know, in general, though, the way that people talk about this, you know, the way that you feel after you get your wisdom teeth pulled, obviously it's affected my speech at least a little bit, and yes, it didn't exactly tickle, but the way that people talk about it, my God, you talk about overhyped, so, anyway, that's pretty much all I got for right now, so, now enjoy the rest of the episode. Your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Uh, Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
Welcome back to Trennis Magnus, The Punch's Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm obsessed. Not just interested in, obsessed with comics, movies, and TV shows. But especially comics. And especially comics by Jerry Ordway. See, I've been a fan of Jerry Ordway since my early days as a collector. He was one of the most important creative contributors to the Superman titles uh, back in the late 80s and especially in the early 90s. And I have to admit that I was a little sad to see Ordway leave the Superman books. I mean, yeah, that happened during all the reign of the Superman hoopla and everything during 1993, so there were definitely other things going on, but you know, at the same time, it really felt like the end of an era. Ordway had been a part of Superman since John Byrne's big reboot back in 1986. And Ordway had started off as the penciler of Adventures of Superman, the, the monthly title, Adventures of Superman. Then he became the co-plotter of it, and then he became the lead writer of it. And really, before too long, he'd moved his business from Adventures of Superman over to I don't really know what else to call it, adjectiveless Superman, the monthly title Superman, where he was once again writer and penciler. And my understanding is that adjectiveless Superman was the highest selling Superman book, so this was quite the reward for all of his work and effort. And throughout his run, Jerry Ordway created or otherwise shepherded a lot of memorable characters like Bibbo, Cat Grant, Gangbuster, Professor Emil Hamilton, and others. So, yeah, all of this to say that, yeah, Ordway's decision to leave the Superman books came as a pretty serious kick in the balls, at least for me. But, in pretty short order, word, word came down the pipeline that Jerry Ordway was going to work on The Power of Shazam, a completely original Captain Marvel hardcover. Is supposed to be fully painted and also intended to serve as a as a scorched earth page one reboot for Captain Marvel. And the basic idea was for this thing to serve as a point of entry for the captain into the DC universe. As I recall, it was something like a year between the time the power of Shazam hardcover was announced until it came out. But man, talk about being worth the wait. Now, I had to be honest. Back then, I knew basically jack shit about Captain Marvel. And to the extent I thought about him at all, pretty much I dismissed him as a Superman knockoff. Now, as a defense, I only ask that you remember that I was 12 years old. But when I actually read the book, a Power of Shazam, the hardcover, I came to understand what Superman and the Captain had in common, but also where they were very different from each other. Superman... Superman, he's basically a character who's incredibly powerful and he was raised to be a good person. Shazam chose Billy to possess the captain's power. Billy was chosen to become powerful because he was already a good person. 
See, Superman's motivating influence is Clark Kent. Clark Kent is what makes Superman possible. All the optimism and hope that people associate with Superman comes from Clark Kent. It's a little bit different, though, with the Captain. Billy Batson is what drives Captain Marvel. At least in Ordway's telling of the story. Billy's naivete and childlike wonder informs the Captain. In Ordway's, Ordway's version, the Captain is a superpowered adult version of Billy himself. He's not a distinct individual the way the Captain had been before. And because of that, Captain Marvel brings Billy's point of view to the table. Now, I mention this because Superman and the Captain are superficially so similar to one another that it's easy to lose sight of just how different they really are. And that's about as good a place as any to get into the, to the summary mixed with just a little bit of history. After a previous retcon by Roy Thomas and Ta Tom Mandrake in 1987 with Shazam! The New Beginning miniseries, Captain Marvel was again given a revised origin in, in the 1994 graphic novel The Power of Shazam, written, drawn, and painted by Jerry Ordway. Captain Marvel's origin would, would also be retold later in Jeff Smith's Shazam, the Monster Society of Evil Limited series in 2007, though this origin takes place outside of DC continuity, meaning Jeff Smith's does. As the Power of Shazam graphic novel opens, 10-year-old Billy Batson's parents, both archaeologists, are working in Egypt, excavating the tomb of Ramses II with their associate Theo Adam. Murdering the elder Batsons, Adam also kidnaps their young daughter Mary and steals a scarab necklace once attached to one of the sarcophagi in the tomb. Billy had been left behind at home in, in Fawcett City because of his poor school grades. As in the Fawcett uh, Comics origins uh, story from Wiz Comics number 2 in 1940, Billy is abandoned by his cruel uncle Ebenezer and becomes a paperboy to earn a living. One night, Billy meets a dark-clothed stranger outside of a subway tunnel and follows the stranger onto a magical subway car. The subway car leads Billy to the realm of the wizard Shazam, who assigns the boy to be his successor. By speaking Shazam's name, Billy is struck by a bolt of magic lightning and transformed into Captain Marvel, an adult superhero. As Captain Marvel, Billy thwarts a plan by Theo Adam and his employer, the rich tycoon Dr. Savannah, to destroy the Wiz radio building and silence, in the process, silence a witness to Adam's murder. Adam's encounter with Marvel, who's the spitting image of C.C. Batson, Billy's father, along with the clues from the expedition, lead him to realize he's the reincarnation of Teth Adam, the original heir to the power of Shazam. Upon crossing the wizard, Teth Adam was killed and his powers drawn into a scarab, the very same scarab that Adam stole from the tomb after murdering the Batsons. Taking the scarab from Savannah's trophy room, Adam says the wizard's name and is struck by magic lightning, becoming Black Adam. Adam and Captain Marvel battle each other on the grounds of the Savannah-funded Fawcett World Fair, with Marvel winning the battle by snatching Adam's scarab from him. Marvel takes Adam to the wizard, who takes Adam's voice and wipes his memory. Later, Billy learns that the stranger who led, who led him to the wizard was the spirit of his father, 
and that his sister Mary is still alive. Billy promises, as Captain Marvel, to fight injustice and evil, and also to find his missing sister. Meanwhile, Savannah's lost all of his money and possessions due to the destruction of his properties by Marvel and Adam, and so he swears revenge on the Captain. So, what did I think? Well, I forget the specifics exactly, but I read The Power of Shazam for the first time when I was home sick from school. Basically, I had some kind of gunk we'd probably do better not to talk very much about, and but trust me, it was really horrible. Uh, horrifying. I mean, then as now, I I had a pretty strong immune system, and it, it really does take a lot to bring me down. And because of that, I generally I only get sick about once a year. And when I first read this book, this hardcover, The Power of Shazam, that was the one time that year that I was going to get sick. Now, I mention all of this to say that because of that, because of the fact that I was sick and, you know, home from school and there really wasn't much else to do, I was able to finish the book all in one go. And honestly, that's the best way to read this hardcover, Power of Shazam, this hardcover, if you ask me. Some things in life can be read piecemeal. The hell, I'd argue that some things are even designed to be read piecemeal, but the Power of Shazam really isn't one of them. It's a big story, and you need to set aside the right amount of time to take it all in. But one obvious thing I came away with is that the Captain isn't some third-rate Superman copycat. That may have been what he was intended to be, and hell, that may even be how he was perceived for a goodly bit of his history, but the simple fact of the matter is that the motivating values of Captain Marvel are just different from the things that motivate Superman. Billy Batson's story revolves around hope, truth, and loyalty in the face of some, let's face it, some really fucking epic adversity and hardship. Clark Kent is Superman because of his upbringing. Billy Batson is Captain Marvel in spite of his upbringing. It's tough to get more different than that. And that's why Billy was ever on Shazam's radar in the first place. And actually, you know what, that actually kind of leads me into why the captain had to be an adult version of Billy. Billy's pureness of heart led him to subconsciously create the captain's image any way he chose. And he subconsciously wanted his father. Now, in the old days, it was pretty clear, like I said before, it's pretty clear that Billy and the captain had different personalities. They, it, they were different people. They had a different consciousness and different points of view. But to enhance Billy's characterization, Jerry Ordway wisely set it up that Billy created the captain's likeness to resemble C.C. Batson, and the only way to get there is if the captain is an adult version of Billy. So <clears throat> I understand what he was up to there. Now, Ordway also recasts Dr. Savannah as a business titan. And honestly, this is something I didn't really care about at the time. I mean, hell, I didn't even know the difference. But this is a reboot. Changes always ensue. And that's, honestly, that's kind of the entire fucking point of reboots. As far as I know, Dr. Savannah has always been a captain of industry ever since the power of Shazam. And... Like I say, I didn't care about that at the time, but honestly, I'm not really sure what to think of that now. On the one hand, 
it fits the story that Ordway is telling here, which is probably why he set Savannah like that up in the first place. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I'm... I'm sick to fuck of business owners being demonized in media. I mean, it's fucking everywhere these days. It's sort of like land developers back in the 80s. I mean, God forbid somebody make a fucking living at something that they're good at. No, no, no. There's always got to be some bullshit evil agenda behind it. The evil 1% and all that stupidity. But that's my view of this stuff nowadays. At the time... Well, at the time, it just, it just kind of rolled off me. But we're all a product of our life experiences, and this one's mine. The whole idea of an evil corporate dude who wants to fuck everybody's day up real bad is... It's just old and busted these days. I'm sorry. But anyway. One of the things that works for me is that Fawcett City is basically a bright, shiny, happy place with a mostly bright, shiny, happy population. Um, yeah, you get bad apples like Savannah here and there, but Fawcett City is an interesting little reflection of Billy. In a way, it's kind of a supporting character in this book, but also, especially in the later Power of Shazam ongoing series that would spin out of this, uh, out of this book. And I have to say, I seriously dig all the decoy design elements of the buildings and the vintage cars and all that kind of stuff because it's just it's just gorgeous to look at. And I guess besides being gorgeous to look at, again, it fits the tone of the story really well. In fact, you'd almost think that Fawcett City had somehow been artificially preserved and just kind of kept one foot in the past, but that's crazy talk. Anyway, my point is, it comes off like the kind of place that would be home for Billy Batson. Fawcett City looks like a place to live, looks like a, just a cool place to live, and it is. And in fact, that kind of relates to my, to my biggest problem with the entire Power of Shazam concept. Now, admittedly, this wasn't necessarily Jerry Ordway's decision. You could argue that Ordway inherited this from Roy Thomas and just had to make do with what he was given, but this book unintentionally highlights why the Captain shouldn't be part of the, D of the mainstream DC universe. Shouldn't. Should not. Before the power of Shazam... There was that Roy Thomas New Beginning miniseries from the 80s. And that was the point where Captain Marvel became part of the DC Universe. Now, before that Roy Thomas New Beginning miniseries in the 80s, the Captain had always inhabited his own immaculate universe with his own unique cast of characters. And I guess it was possible to do occasional crossovers with the DC Universe, but Captain Marvel wasn't really part of the DC Universe. Not until Roy Thomas and The New Beginning. Here's the thing. The concept of a unique universe works for Captain Marvel. The Golden Age Fawcett comics had their own rules of reality, their own style. DC has always had its own style. Marvel has a, its own style. And Fawcett Comics, they had their own style too, their own 
reality, their own myth, I guess. And trying to force the Fawcett comics style into the DC universe is a pretty fucking tall order. But, and I mean that in terms of style. But r- the real problem, well, style and tone and all that is what I'm saying. But if you ask me the real problem here is that even though I just explained how different Superman and the Captain are from one another, at the same time, you really can't ignore their similarities, especially back in 1994. Back then, they both wore capes and boots. They both had female counterparts and younger versions of themselves as kind of pseudo-sidekicks. And they both worked in mass media in their civilian lives and so on and so forth. But Obviously, the real similarity between Captain Marvel and Superman is their power level. They have, or had, fairly similar power levels. And how many characters that powerful can any universe support? Invariably, that leads to the Captain being sidelined. Superman is DC's flagship character. Always has been. Always will be. So... Where the fuck's that leave Captain Marvel? But that's less of a problem if the Captain exists in his own universe, separate and apart from the mainstream DC universe. It can be a place where Captain Marvel and Uncle Dudley, Talkie Tawny and Hoppy and other characters can exist without necessarily threatening the DC universe's intended tone. And if you must have some kind of knockdown, drag-out fight between Superman and the Captain, you can do a crossover for that anytime you want. No big deal. But otherwise, their universes can stay far the fuck away from each other, and that, I think, works to the benefit of both characters. Now, see, that's something else that's always kind of bugged me. For one thing, I've never understood the attraction of Superman throwing down with Captain Marvel. I think heroes fighting other heroes is more Marvel shtick than anything. They do it, they do it well. So let them do that while DC tells stories about characters that aren't constantly beating the piss out of one another. The other thing, though, is that Superman and the Captain are always shown to be pretty much equals with each other, and sorry, I just don't buy it. The Captain's powers are based in magic. Superman is vulnerable to magic. Magic works on him the same as it would anybody else. If the captain were to punch a regular human in the face with all his strength, the guy's head would explode. Well, um, that should be what happens if the captain punches Superman. Except it never does because obviously DC doesn't want Superman to get killed. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think DC has any respect for Superman anymore. You can think I'm wrong if you want, but you know I'm right. Even still, they won't let a corporate acquisition like Captain Marvel beat the shit out of Superman, their native character. just isn't going to happen. So it doesn't matter that a fight between Superman and the Captain should be over in less than two seconds and leave Kal-El a bloody stain on the wall. That story ain't ever going to be published. So, so like I said, all around, the concept of Superman and Captain Marvel fighting each other is just, it's just a stupid fucking concept. 
Yeah, it made for a cool episode of Justice League Unlimited. Yeah, it's been a trope of both Superman and the Captain since the 70s. And yeah, for whatever reason, a Superman-Captain Marvel battle has a lot of marquee appeal. Though I don't know why. But none of that changes the fact that Superman and the Captain fighting each other is just a dumb idea. Period. End of discussion. This is why Captain Marvel should exist in his own unique universe rather than be integrated into the mainstream DC universe. I mean, his power level is arguably redundant, and indisputably, he should be a mortal threat to Superman. It just... It just doesn't make sense for Superman and the Captain to exist in the same universe. Now, go ahead. Tell me I'm wrong. You can email me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. But... Just know in advance that I'm right. And deep down inside in a place that you're afraid to acknowledge, you know I'm right. Now, like I said, you, could, you, you can certainly argue that Ordway had no say in this. That he inherited this situation from Roy Thomas. And hell, who's to say that Roy Thomas even had any say in the matter? For all I know, maybe Roy Thomas had his arm twisted into incorporating the Captain into the mainstream DC universe. All I'm saying is, no matter whose fucking idea it was, it's a stupid decision. And no amount of excuses or bullshit will ever make it anything other than a stupid decision. Still. There's a rumor that's been making the rounds for years now. I don't even know when the hell it started. But basically it goes that John Byrne wanted to reboot Captain Marvel and place him in his own independent universe like the old days with Fawcett, but DC just wouldn't stand for it. Because of that, my understanding goes that the reboot that John Byrne was working on was pretty much abandoned when Byrne was still in the planning stages of it. Now, I have no idea how true or accurate that is. It's totally possible that the, inst- the, the entire story is just completely made up. But felt like it was worth mentioning. Anyway, as far as a shared universe goes, the ongoing Power of Shazam miniseries would somewhat prove what a bad idea a shared universe is for Captain Marvel. Now, listening to all this stuff that I'm saying here, you might think that I don't like the Power of Shazam concept, but I do. I really do. I just have issues with some elements of it. Don't get me wrong. The good far outnumbers the bad. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the Power of Shazam graphic novel would make for an amazing film. Now, it's never going to fucking happen, of course, because if the captain ever gets his own film... Bet your ass it'll be based on that shitty New 52 thing, which saddens me, but that doesn't change the fact that Power of Shazam would provide one hell of a foundation for Captain Marvel in film. The comparison between Jerry Ordway's Power of Shazam and Roy Thomas's The New Beginning are inevitable, but honestly... I don't think the comparison favors The New Beginning. I've never really liked The New Beginning very much. Now, I've read a lot of people say that a lot of The New Beginning's flaws are mostly because Roy Thomas was 
pretty much forced to use elements of Captain Marvel's existing continuity in his retelling of the origin. And you know what? For all I know, that might even be true. But the fact is that whether it was his idea or someone else's, there are just a lot of flaws and weaknesses to the new beginning. And by and large, they're problems that the power of Shazam just doesn't have. Now, I don't want to talk too much about the new beginning because I may do a show about it at some point. Suffice it to say, though, if you like the new beginning, that's great. I'm happy for you. I'm not trying to take that away from you. It's just that I happen to think the power of Shazam is a far superior product. And that's not just because I'm sort of a Jerry Ordway fanboy. But that doesn't hurt either. So, now, a great big part of that, you know, the reason why I prefer Power of Shazam to the New Beginning is Jerry Ordway's art. I just like his take on Captain Marvel more than Tom Mandrake's. I think it was, well, I think it was Tom Mandrake who drew the New Beginning. I, actually, I don't know. I'm going off memory on that. I think it was Tom Mandrake, though. Anyway, admittedly, Ordway's art for Power of Shazam is of a much higher caliber than most of what was being done in the comics at this time. Like, for example, it's more highly detailed. I don't know this to be absolutely true, but my suspicion is that Ordway was given just a hell of a long deadline to do all of his work. And that allowed him a ton of leisure time to slave over every single line of every single panel on every single page. And honestly, there's really no way to argue with the end product. The art here is just fucking gorgeous. And you can tell that Ordway really had a chance to spread his wings a little bit here because if you compare the art in the Power of Shazam hardcover to Ordway's work in Superman, or hell, even the stuff that he'd draw later on for uh, the Power of Shazam ongoing title, like towards the end of the run when he had to hit monthly deadlines and so he couldn't obsess over detail and perfection on every page in those cases like he can with this Power of Shazam hardcover. And I'm not criticizing him either. Nobody can turn out work of this caliber on a monthly schedule. It's just not possible. So don't take that as me bashing on Jerry Ordway because I'd never do that. Anyway, other stuff. I mentioned the deco and period feel of all the buildings and cars and stuff. All the art has a sort of period flavor to it. On page 14, Adam stabs C.C. Batson, and the shadows on the wall just make me think of a 1940s adventure film. In fact, Ordway does a lot of interesting things with shadows and silhouettes in this book. And again, a lot of it just kind of reminds me of 1940s movies. And of course, of course, there's the fact that the art here is all painted. My understanding is that Jerry Ordway had an interest in painting even before he made his name in the industry. Now, I've heard interviews with him where he said he loves the options that painting gives him. And guys, I have to tell you, that's not idle bullshit on his part. He really kills it with the coloring in this book. In fact, you know, there's a moment where Billy meets his father's ghost or whatever in the the rain in Fawcett City. And that... 
basically that sequence, starting from the moment that he meets the ghost until just before he sees the statues of the seven deadly enemies of man, that entire sequence just oozes atmosphere because it's, it's, it's color. I just fucking love it, this color. Now, look, I bagged a lot on Alex Ross back in my Kingdom Come episode because it feels like Alex Ross was in such a hurry to develop his photo real painting style that's kind of made him famous that he never really mastered the fundamentals of, of storytelling in comics. And because of that, I've never thought Alex Ross's work is as expressive or powerful as it could be. Now, I say that to make a comparison. Obviously, Jerry Ordway doesn't have that problem. He mastered storytelling in comics years ago. So the painted art, that's not just a gimmick. It's Ordway taking his storytelling and his art to the next level. He only uses the paints as a tool to tell his story better. You're not left oogling all the pretty pictures because there's really not much else to admire about the book. He's already developed his content. He's already developed his style. The art, specifically, I mean, the painting, only enhances the content that's already there. He's already mastered the ins and outs of storytelling as a writer and the ins and outs of storytelling as a pencil. So all he does here is just make his already good art look even better. That's the difference between Jerry Ordway and Alex Ross. Jerry Ordway already is a master. Alex Ross, much to learn, he still has. Anyway, my point is that The Power of Shazam, the graphic novel, the hardcover, is a masterpiece of graphic storytelling, at least in my opinion. If you've never read it before, if for no other reason than to see how a master uses the original graphic novel format, people buy this. Check it out. Read it. I guarantee you'll love it. You don't need to know anything about Captain Marvel going into this thing. Jerry will tell you everything you need to know. So, so yeah, I think that's it. So I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back after these messages. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. 
Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Now, introducing the... We're a live fancast. A fancast dedicated to a story of survival. Hey, this is Mick. This is Redbeard. We would like to introduce our new fancast, in which we will be covering season four of the zombie podcast audio drama known as We're Alive. Join us as we review each episode as it comes out, leading into the conclusion of this great zombie story. We can be found at mickred.com. That's M-I-C-K-R-E-D.com, or by searching for We're Alive Fancasts on iTunes and Facebook. From the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron. Just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Got a little bit of feedback to sort through here. This first bit of business comes from uh, my old friend, Fanboyimus Prime. Email is entitled Sandman Mystery Theater, most definitely not 3000. Dated April the 23rd. Fanboyimus Prime writes, Hey Magnus. Okay, so the new Batman show is not a preview. However, I really wonder why so many, quote, before they get into the costume, unquote, pitches and such are made. Yes, I know Smallville did well, but it was still covering an explored era of the Superman mythos. Yes, it was in a very different manner, 
and didn't have Clark be Superboy, but that's like Spider-Man Spider or the X-Men cartoons with the characters as teens. I'm going to put this on pause and say, I'm honestly not really seeing a whole lot of this stuff lately, and I'll tell you why. Why I think that is. You can do a show about uh, Clark Kent becoming Superman. Obviously you can do that, because fucking that was done for ten seasons on Smallville, so obviously we know that it can be done. You also can do a show about, well, you can at least come up with ideas for a show where Bruce Wayne trains to be Batman, and I don't know, I'm actually kind of a skeptic on this, to tell you the truth, but apparently we're going to see how well this does or doesn't work, so I don't know. Anyway, that's coming. And... Honestly, though, I mean, you look around comic, uh, just any really comic book character, comic book property, or whatever else, and what you realize pretty quick is this is not really something that you can do with just with just every single character that comes down the pipeline, all right? For example, you really couldn't do this, and I know I'm I'm not trying to, you know, pick your, uh, your example apart here, I'm just... I just thought this was a this was a good example, and I thought of it too. You really couldn't do something like this with Spider-Man. I mean, honestly, who gives a shit about Peter Parker before he becomes Spider-Man? It's nobody cares, all right. And same thing. I, let me think. Who's in a, uh, Barry Allen before he becomes the Flash, or Hal Jordan be, before he becomes Green Lantern. You just, there's just not a whole lot of stuff there. I mean, I guess you could maybe have something that's kind of cool for The Punisher. And I say that because Garth Ennis actually did a miniseries based on that very premise, and I thought it turned out freaking awesome, so there you go. But I look around comics characters, and what I see are characters that you, up until the moment that they really become superheroes, they don't really have all that interesting a story to tell. You know, the story that they have, whatever dramatic potential there is there, comes once they put on the costume. And then then you're in... That's when, I guess, the real, the real adventure starts, right? You could probably do this with uh, the same type of thing with Daredevil. It's just that, at least right now, he doesn't have the same kind of marquee appeal, you know? But honestly, I mean, no one really gives a damn about Tony Stark before he becomes Iron Man. Nobody cares, you know? There's really no story there. But there is one with Superman. Arguably, there's one with Batman. And I, like I said, I think you, know, you could also put uh, the Punisher and Daredevil in there as well. But otherwise, there, this, it, there's not just any comic book character can do this and then on top of all of that how many of those really have the kind of mainstream marquee appeal that they could sustain a show as long as Smallville did you know forgive me I'm getting a text message here so there's just not that many and so I think the main reason that we're seeing this stuff is because well number one um Movie studios and TV stations and whatnot, TV networks, they love formulas, 
All right. And whether anybody likes it or not, Smallville provides a very successful formula on one way to do superheroes. And on top of all of that, there's an entire contingent of Hollywood, I'm convinced, that they just don't like. I think they actually openly fucking resent the idea that uh, comic book properties are now so crucial to Hollywood's day-to-day survival. And so... Thing, you know, somebody who's just fundamentally insecure with all of this to begin with, they realize they need to do these types of stories if they want to, you know, pay the bills, but they don't want to put people running around in funny costumes and with goofy powers and all this kind of stuff. And so they, I think, they tend to view Smallville as, as a model on how to do, basically how to cash in on superheroes Without really having to do superheroes, right? And look, Smallville debuted in a time and in a place in American television, and I would say really in pop culture history, where I don't think the unwashed masses were all that willing to accept like hardcore comic book concepts, you know? Uh, For as pre-crisis driven as I think Smallville eventually became, You have to admit, the first several seasons of Smallville, they're pretty grounded stuff, mostly, you know? And so, it's just, it's easy on a TV budget. It's it's easy to deal with for somebody who's just fundamentally uh, uncomfortable with uh, uh, comic book characters and superheroes and all that stuff. Somebody who's basically just kind of turned off by that, and I mean from a creative standpoint you know, the, the creative types who are maybe turned off by that, this gives them an out, you know? And so that's why I think we're seeing so much of this lately. And honestly, I don't think we're seeing all that much. I think we're seeing a lot of year one type of shit, you know, X-Men first class and all that stuff, you know? But otherwise, you know, they're just, there's just not as much of this as as there as there could be. I mean, certainly... Look, I'm no happier about, you know, Batman getting another fucking TV show than anyone else. Because, you know, God knows, if there's one thing we've, we've lacked in the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, it's Batman on TV. God knows, we haven't gotten enough of that. Hacks. But at least it's Batman returning to live-action TV, so, for the first time since the 60s, so there's that. But overall, I mean, it's just, I think the reason that you're starting to see more of this kind of bullshit is just that, like I said, there's an entire contingent of Hollywood who fucking resent the fact that superheroes are now paying everybody's bills. But they can't really ignore it, and so what they do is just basically try to cash in while at the same time obligating themselves to as little superhero myth as is absolutely necessary. That's just the way I view it. You know, so anyway, you want to know what I think about it? There you go. Now, excuse me while I have a while I light up a cigarette here. <sighs> now, to get back into uh, Fanboy Ms. Prime's email, he writes, "It is an era of the characters told in a different way." 
but still it was done in the comics, so I can roll with that. But does anyone really care about what Bruce Wayne was doing before he donned the mask? I'm going to put your email on pause here again and just say, honestly, no, I don't. I mean, I'm, I, I'm well aware of the fact that uh, Smallville was originally intended to be a Batman show, but I'm just going to put it out there, dude. I don't see what story there is there. You know, it's unless they really shake up what Batman was doing during those those training years, then I just don't think it's going to be a very fucking entertaining show. I mean, I think there's a reason why so much of this is going to follow Commissioner Gordon and take place in Gotham City. You know? And Honestly, look, I just, I don't think that what Smallville did is necessarily a repeatable formula, you know? And what I think is, look, I mean, I can come up with, I don't know, a season or maybe two or three, at most, three seasons of a show where Bruce Wayne trains to be Batman. You know, I could make, if I really tried hard, I bet I could probably come up with, at most, three seasons worth of stuff to talk about. But otherwise, I'm just kind of at a loss. I mean, ultimately, Bruce Wayne heads out of Gotham City to train, and he does so with an agenda. There's something that he wants to accomplish, and he's got a pretty good idea of what he's going to attempt to do when he gets back. Smallville basically told the story of Clark meeting his destiny, but at times being either unwilling to accept it, or for that matter, maybe just uncertain of what his destiny is. And so as much as anything, he's got to figure out his destiny on his terms. But before he can even do that, he has to become comfortable with it. You know, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of dramatic material there to work with. You don't really get that with Batman. To me, the minute Thomas and Martha Wayne die, they bleed to death in that alley, Batman is Bruce Wayne's inescapable destiny. That's where his life is going, and there's nothing he can do about it, you know? And so unless he's, for some reason, incoherently going around the world to train to meet a destiny that he doesn't want, I don't see what character growth there is for him to overcome, or at least nothing that we didn't see to some degree or another in, in, in Batman Begins especially, but also other movies as well. And I guess I, I don't get it. And look, if other people are excited about, the, uh, about Gotham, the TV show, and things that are going on with it, you know what, dude? Don't let me stand in your way, please. All right? The last thing I would ever want to do is rain on your parade. All right? Because I got to tell you, I really resented it, especially like the last, I don't know, five or so seasons of Smallville, where... Well, I probably shouldn't... I, I shouldn't name names. But if you're familiar with Superman fandom at all, there's a certain uh, website out there, a certain fan site, that making any kind of positive uh, statements about Smallville would get you tarred, feathered, and run out of town. Because it happened to me. All right? I was banned from a, a Superman fan site <clears throat> because I had the temerity not to hold to the orth to what they were trying to convince me was the orthodox view of Smallville. This was a very Superman Returns oriented uh, website. 
all right? And they ran off everybody who had the nerve to have a dissenting fucking opinion, all right? And so the last thing I would ever want to do is be that guy, you know? The guy that ostracizes other people because they dare think for themselves, right? Look, I don't want to be that guy. So if you're looking forward to Gotham, and this sounds like it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread to you, dude, God bless, all right? Have at it. Enjoy it, all right? Hell, I'll even help you do it in saying this. I really did not give a, a crap about Gotham. No matter what spoiler news or whatever, spy reports, whatever you want to call it, that were, you know, rumors and stuff coming down the pipeline, didn't give a flying crap about any of them until word came out that Jada Pinkett Smith was going was gonna to have a very major role of some kind in Gotham. And, I, and that got my attention in a big, bad way because, dude... I kind of I don't consider myself like a Jada Pink uh, Pinkett fanboy or anything like that, but dude, if something about this TV show has gotten her attention, if anything was ever to give me pause, it would be that Jada Pinkett Smith is now doing not not just a some kind of comic book property, specifically a TV show. To me, that's really cool. You know, Jada Pinkett doing a Batman TV show, I think that's really cool. So, and you know what? I'll go a step further even than that. There's every possibility that Gotham is going to come out and I'll fall in love with it. All right? I don't foresee that happening. I really don't. But it could. And you know what? I think that'd be cool, you know, because who doesn't want more comics media out there? I sure do. And I've been kind of a cheerleader about bringing this stuff to TV. But what kind of pisses me off is that Basically, it seems like everything that's coming along is just just fucking safe bet, all right? Green Arrow, and I'm sorry, I don't give a shit what that TV show is called. That superhero is called Green Arrow, and that's what I go by. He had a thriving character arc on Smallville, and now he has his own show. Batman, in the past ten years, has released movies that have earned something like two and a half billion dollars or more worldwide, maybe three billion and, again, safe bet, all right? Honestly, you know what I would love to see? Here's a TV show that I would absolutely uh, blow my shorts to see, right? A Jack Knight Starman TV show. How cool would that be? Or, let me think, um, Infinity Incorporated. Young All-Stars. I mean, there's so many ideas that kind of lend themselves to a sort of CW thing. Assuming that's the end-all, be-all. If you must have some kind of a CW-oriented show, those are not bad properties to choose from, if you ask me. Hell, I happen to think that if you really want to go high concept, Legion of Superheroes. You don't even have to mention Superman or Superboy. You could just do it kind of the same way that um, the, the Mark Wade 3-boot version did, where they're inspired by the stories of superheroes from the 21st century, right? You don't need to get specific as to which one. They're inspired by all of them, right? And just don't name names. Simple, you know? Or don't commit yourself too much to, you know, one particular character. I don't know. And put that on sci-fi or something. I don't know. There's a way to do this, you know? And there's, it just feels like, to me, DC has a, they're just sitting on a gold mine. 
You know, Warner Brothers is sitting on a gold mine with all the all these DC properties that they could be making TV shows and movies and all this other stuff. They could be making that stuff anytime they want to, but they, we keep getting these bullshit safe bets, like uh, Green Arrow, like Batman, on and on and on. And I'm sorry, guys, I want to see something fucking new already. All right, show me something I haven't seen before. You know, and anyway, I mean. It, it, like I said, on the one hand, you run the risk of bitching and complaining about getting the very thing that you asked for, which in my case is more superhero stuff on TV. But on the other hand, like I said, we're kind of back to square zero of everyone wanting the fucking safe bet. And I'm sick of the safe bet. Marvel does not make safe bets. If there's one legacy that we can take away from everything Marvel has done since the first Iron Man movie, they don't make safe bets. And look how that's paid off for them. You know, meanwhile... The best we can hope for from Warner Brothers is, at least so far, a Superman reboot. You know, and I, look, guys, Superman is my favorite character in all of fiction. Fuck comics, for the moment. Superman is my all-time favorite character in all of fiction, and that's really been the high point of Warner Brothers' comic book output for me. Easily for the last 10 or 15 years, maybe even more than that. Man of Steel, to me is the best thing they've done with comics, possibly ever, but certainly lately, you know? And as good as Man of Steel is, as much as I enjoy it, I just want something new, you know? Anyway, so I'm going to take another drag off my cigarette here. Anyway, so how was that for a rant, huh? Ah, that felt good. All right, so let's see. Now to get back into uh, Fanboy Miss Prime's email, he writes... Uh, I'm just going to take it really from the top here. It's an era of the characters told in a different way, but it was still done in the comics. So I can roll with that. But does anyone really care about Bruce Wayne and what he was doing before he donned the mask? Or before, or before who became the Joker had first donned his red hood, let alone that chemical bath that made him into a, made him into a man who liked multiple choice for his origins. I'm going to put this email back on pause. That's actually one aspect of the Joker's origin I really wish people would just fucking get over. He was the red hood. He, had a, he, he fell into a bunch of chemicals that transformed him into the Joker. I don't really give a damn what Alan Moore thinks to the contrary, especially whenever he showed us that Red Hood origin. That's, that's the Joker's origin. That's been orthodox for the Joker since what? Like the 50s or something like that? He was the Red Hood originally. And then he fell into this huge tank of chemicals and that turned him into the Joker. It bleached his skin white, turned his hair green. That's the Joker's origin. All right? And anyway, geez, that's another soft. That that's just another kind of tender point for me here. Anyway, back to uh, Prime's email. He writes, while Arrow from the showrunner, who has also written comics over the years, whoopty fucking do, has the theme of digging out whatever obscure characters we can, and even has a fl a, a Flash spinoff ready to go. Speaking of stuff we've never seen before, get back into his email though. It reminds me that. Bane has never gotten a faithful adaptation to live action. Sad fate for such an interesting character. And, you know what, maybe you're right. So, Sandman Mystery Theater, which I, of course, made a Mystery Science Theater 3000 reference to in the title. 
I can't help myself, okay? Oh, and the writer for the story covered um, on the episode did a, uh, an incredible pair of linked together Batman limited series and also a Trinity limited, limited series. The short Trinity series, not the weekly series. That also was good, but not by the same writer. Dude, you are the first one I've met who said that. But anyway, to get back into it, this series also makes that a guy who wanted to be called a tarantula not too long after, uh, after that a bit creepy. He was a hero, became a member of the All-Star Squadron, and even wrote a book on the mystery men of the era, uh, of the era in which he was active. <clears throat> Doubt the book shows Sandman's more uh, superheroic costume and his sidekick, Sandy. Of course, that stuff came in later for Sandman. So the artist in a million that can draw everything. Would John Byrne and George Perez count as that? I want to put this email on pause, actually. That's, that's a good point. What I said in the Sandman episode was that it's the artist in a million who can draw literally everything, right? Who can tell any kind of story, who can evoke any type of mood with the art or whatever else. My view has always been that most artists have a niche. And I think the example I used in uh, the Sandman episode was that Mike Raringo, he had a very sort of flashy, sort of stylized and cartoony uh, type of approach to his art, and that couldn't help but affect the way that the stories came across in, uh, in each of his comics, right? To the degree that, you know, Mike Raringo could draw one hell of a Flash comic book, but I don't really think I want to read a uh, Mike Ringo comic book that uh, or rather, a Walking Dead comic book that Micro Ringo drew, right? I'm sorry, it's just that I don't think, as, as talented as Micro Ringo was, and as much as I admire, you know, his art, I just don't think he would have been a good match for something like The Walking Dead, or, I don't know, The Punisher Max, or something like that. Something that's just really dark and gritty and and uh, kind of gory and all that kind of stuff. I just don't think he would have been a good match for it. And that was the point. I said, and got, now I'm totally blanking on the artist's name now, but what I said was that <clears throat> the artist who drew that uh, Sandman Mystery Theater uh, storyline that, uh, that I talked about, he did great for that kind of story, but, and this was not intended to be a slight against him, I'd I think I said something like, I don't want to see him draw the Avengers or something. I think it was something like that, right? And for those of you who don't know, that's where Fanboy Ms. Prime's question, I think, is coming from, right? So his question here is, would John Byrne and George Perez count as one of those artists in a million that can draw everything? And honestly, no. Uh... I've seen, I, I think I've sampled a pretty decent cross-section of John Byrne's um, repertoire over the years. I've seen a lot of what he's capable of, and at least so far, I haven't seen anything in his published material that makes me think, you know what, that guy could do a hell of a job if he was to draw something, <clears throat> I don't know, something like... Again, I keep coming back to The Walking Dead because that is just so far apart from superhero comics that it's just such an easy example. But I don't think I could picture uh, uh, John Byrne, as we know him today anyway, 
or really at any point prior in his career, I don't think we've ever seen John Byrne really draw anything that would make me think, you know what, that guy's ready to take on The Walking Dead. I just don't see it. And again, that's not a slight. You know, he's got a very specific type of style. It's slightly cartoony. It's way over the top and stylized. You know, he has his own sort of creative process for everything that he does. He's one of the best uh, that the comics industry has ever produced. And, you know, he's just an incredibly, incredibly dynamic talent. But can he draw anything? You know, at the risk of putting words in his mouth, I think John Byrne might be the first one to say, you know what, I can't draw just anything. That's just my reading of the guy. I think he's got the honesty to say that, you know what, he has his strengths, he has his weaknesses, and there are certain things that he does really well, and there are certain genre, entire genres, maybe, that he would do better to steer well away from. You know, when it comes to superhero stuff, or even offbeat, kind of off-the-beaten-path-type superhero stuff, dude, I think John, John Byrne, like in his prime... He was as good as anybody and better than most. And even today, I think the guy is just incredibly fucking talented, right? But is he really ready to draw The Walking Dead or something along those lines? I just don't see it. That's just me. Again, not bashing on the guy. You'd have to go a long way to find somebody who's a bigger John Byrne fan than me. I'm just saying, I don't think he's one of those one-in-a-million type of artists who can draw anything. I just don't see it. George Perez, on the other hand, <clears throat> you know, of the two, if I could believe it of any of these guys, either of the two that you mentioned here, John Byrne and George Perez, dude, I could actually, I could see that for George Perez because he's drawn not just so much different stuff over his, uh, you know, throughout his career, but there's something about his art that with not much of a tilt at all, he could steer it into horror. He could see, he's already, he's got a demonstrable track record of doing mainstream superhero stuff. I bet he'd be perfectly at home doing, um, you know, just kind of off the beaten path, weird, fucked up indie comics. I mean, I think George, George Perez could probably draw anything he wants and it would look great. So yeah, I think he could absolutely do that. But John Byrne, again, not bashing on the guy. I love him. Yes, even now, I love him. I just don't think he could draw anything, you know, anything at all, anything under the sun. He can do a lot, and he does it better, as good as anybody. Like I said before, as good as anybody and better than most. But this idea of him drawing just everything, I, I'm not ready to sign my name to that. So, anyway. To get back into Fanboy Miss Prime's email, though, uh, he writes... The thing about the book not having Sa- not having Sandman have any ties to the wider DC universe. Well, the period he's in is at the start of the DCU and before the Justice Society had formed. And Sandman wasn't a founding member of that team either. So he really has no personal connections at all to any of the other mystery men of that era. Anyway, I really need to read Sandman Mystery Theater. Should be interesting. And that's where the email ends. And so I just want to say, dude, uh, fanboy Miss Prime, thank you, thank you, thank you again 
for writing in and um, you know sharing your thoughts like this. And dude, I encourage you by all means, go ahead and keep reading Sandman Mystery Theater because I'm not sure that I'll ever uh, come back to that. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I honestly I don't know. But what I can say is that this is it's a it, it's a good comic. It it's not like fun in like I guess the high superhero kind of way. I don't mean it like that. But it is a good little read and I think, you know, there's there's a lot that you can a lot there to, uh, to be enjoyed. I think you'd get a kick out of it. So um and in fact, you know what? On top of all of that, tell you what, if you want to just uh start up a little reading project and just send me little updates and stuff, dude, it would be my pleasure to read those things on mic so that, you know, basically other people can follow along and you know, kind of get an idea of uh, of where you are with the uh, you know your little reading project here. So, if that's what you want to do, man. Just say the word, and uh, we can make that happen. So, anyway, just let me know. And I think that should be pretty much it for that. Uh, at least for feedback this time out, because I'm already starting to go long in this segment as it is. So, so I think that's that. So. But next week, come back next week for a Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn. I'm going to be, uh, you know, hashing my way through that. And uh, that looks to be a lot of fun. Uh, so just come back, enjoy that. Uh, honestly, what I'd originally uh, envisioned was a sort of Green Lantern kind of mega series. But we just finished up a mega series not all that long ago, and I'm still wiped out from that. So I decided what I'm going to do is basically just split up uh, the Green Lantern stuff and just kind of spread that out a little bit more. And I think a good, a great big part of that is because Green Lantern doesn't really have as many origin stories in, in comics to choose from as Superman does, and, or to a degree, Batman does. And so I think this is actually, in the end, this is going to be the smarter way to do it. Plus, sooner or later, and I mean in the distant fucking future, I, I don't even have a release date for this yet is uh, how far ahead we are. But I was originally going to, as part of my Green Lantern mega series, I was actually going to introduce, or introduce, I was going to start up a a, a coverage on uh, Blackest Night. And so, honestly, it just kind of felt a little bit disjointed what I originally planned. It was going to be Green Lantern Emerald Dawn, Green Lantern Emerald Dawn 2, uh, then it was going to be Secret Origin. And then from there, I was going to spend the remaining three episodes of that six-episode kind of cycle um, going through Blackest Night. And that just kind of felt like a really weird way to do it. So I've come up with a different way to do it. And so, I'm, like I said, I'm going to be talking about Emerald Dawn next week. But the other Green Lantern stuff, I've actually got saved for the distant future. And so, not really too sure, you know, like I said, when I'm going to get a chance to do that. Other than that I will eventually, you know, cover all that stuff. So that's pretty much that. And um, otherwise, I think that's pretty much it for this week. So bye, everybody. See you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E. F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality 
There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opening, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.